The contents of this podcast are provided for general information and educational purposes only and do not constitute investment, accounting, legal, tax or other professional advice. Welcome to the Money Magnet Podcast, helping you attract and keep a fortune that counts with co-hosts self-made money magnet Steve McKnight and esteemed journalist Rowan Wen. G'day, I'm Steve McKnight and thanks for listening. This is the Money Magnet Podcast, where my mate Rowan and I chat candidly about money matters. G'day, Ro. Hey, Steve. Great to be back. It is great to be back. Now, Ro, today we want to talk about, which is funny enough because I'm also known as a real estate guy, real estate or property and whether it's become a government-sponsored Ponzi scheme. Ba, ba, ba. So why don't you kick us off by telling all the listeners exactly what a Ponzi scheme is and how it sucks people in? Well, a Ponzi scheme is basically a scam where people think they're investing in something and they're getting a rate of return that seems quite high normally. And what the guy running the scheme does, he takes money from new investors and gives it to the older investors to keep the scheme going for as long as possible as he rips off more and more people as they join up. So the later you join a Ponzi scheme, the more likely you are to get burnt. I like the way you use the masculine then. It's not, of course, just guys that rip people off. I think you meant that in a guy gender neutral point of view. But that said, historically, it's funny how males are overrepresented in the Ponzi scheme schemes. I mean, the word Ponzi itself actually comes from... Charles Ponzi from the 1920s, Boston, who's the... I think these things had happened beforehand, but he's the guy that really made it a brand and it actually took his name. So it's kind of being known for the thing you are. And Ponzi was his last name. Can I tell you how I lost $165,000 in a Now, I don't even know this story. No, (laughs) we talked about talking about this today. I didn't know about this. So how did that happen? Because you're meant to be good with money. Well, yeah, the old Ponzi scheme. So this happened circa 2006. And it was a friend's father who introduced us to the Ponzi scheme. And often that's one of the hallmarks of a Ponzi scheme you only see in hindsight is that they come via legitimate means and via a trusted person or a trusted network. Now, this person wasn't in the scheme. It's just that they were working for the people who were promoting the scheme. Right. And because he was working for them, it was like, well, he wouldn't rip us off. Yeah. So it must be legit because it's come from a legit source. So the first thing you need to watch out for in a Ponzi scheme is something that's too good to be true and then comes via a trusted person or a trusted network. And Ponzi schemes take off because Rowan hears it from someone Rowan trusts, yep. and I hear it from Rowan, and I trust Rowan. Yep. And therefore, well, Rowan wouldn't lead me down the wrong way, and therefore it must be okay. And usually with Ponzi schemes as well, the initial returns seem legit, yeah. Yeah, well, not only do they seem legit, they're actually paid out. It's like, look at my bank statement. They've been paying me 20% interest now for a year. Yeah. You know, it's working. But it can't go on. Well, you don't know it can't go on at the time. Now, the other thing about this Ponzi scheme, now what it was, let me describe it to you, right? Yeah. Now, obviously, I've already told you it's a Ponzi scheme, so you're going to think it's it's dodgy from the start. True. Why didn't Steve know better? But the idea behind this Ponzi scheme was that There were large mining companies whose executives were coming in from overseas and were going to need to rent a car for a short period of time, but for longer than what a normal hire car company like Avis or Hertz or someone would rent. They might need it for a month or two because they're coming over to stay, stay, like short stay accommodation, but for cars. And so these guys had contracts with large mining companies, I won't mention names, And what they would do is go and buy or go and get a car on a fleet plan. So effectively borrow money to get a car, 
and then the margin they would make on renting the car out to the hire companies was greater than the cost of servicing the debt. Got it. So like a bank, but with cars. Yep. Yeah. So they were making a margin and it was going to be profitable, but they needed equity to put down as deposits in addition to the finance they were getting to get these cars that they were going to rent out. Because they couldn't borrow 100%. Because they couldn't borrow 100%. Exactly. Now, we went and checked the actual contracts. Right. We flew up to head office. We sat down, show us your bank statements, show us the money coming in, show us the contracts with mining company ABCD, and all the paperwork was there. Right. So not only did it come from a trusted advisor, the work we did behind the scenes to check the validity of it was such that it all stacked up. So how do you avoid that scam then? Well, hang on. Let me tell you a bit more about the scam. So Rowan, if you pay $50,000, yep. yeah, usually in lots of $50,000, here's what we'll do for you. Because we can get a great deal on the cars, we'll also give you a car. Right. So it's not your car. You yeah. can, you will effectively pay the lease payments for you out of the profit. So the use of a car. The use of a car. All you need to do is pay the petrol. We'll pay the maintenance. We'll pay the rego. We'll give you 50 grand back, but you've got this car as well. Right. Plus we'll also give you, I can't remember what the return was. It might've been 18% or something like this that. sounds too good to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I told you in hindsight, it doesn't stack up. Yeah. Right. But we'll pay. And again, because these are the margins that we're making. So this is what we can afford to do. We'll also make a profit out of this as well. Did you question the margins? Well, we went and checked the business model. Yeah. We went and looked at the money coming in the bank account. We went and looked at the contracts and we're like, all right, well, yeah, you can make a profit and we can still do this. It all, it all stacks up because the mining companies are willing to pay. So much more. So much more. They're overpaying. Well, not overpaying. It's just that mining- They're flush with cash so they could And do mining it. companies were making so much money. Yeah, you know, it. like it, it didn't seem beyond the realms because they were making these super profits. Record profits, and yeah. And they were, they were happy to pay what the market rate was for renting these cars. So we got a car each, one for Jules, one for me. There's a hundred grand. And then we also got a car for a friend of ours who was a pastor at the church who wasn't earning much money. Yeah. And by that stage, I think it had gone from 50 to 65 grand or something like that. So we were 165 grand in the hole. So what happened? Well, the thing about Ponzi schemes is they can only go on for so long until it topples over. And it typically topples over when you're giving me the journalist hand on the chin here. I'm sorry. I'm just looking at you with a curious face. I'm I'm feeling, oh my goodness. Don't worry. If you you could see, folks, Rowan's giving me a stern look here. Slightly disappointed. Look, actually, no, I'm just joking. We all make mistakes. <laughs> it toppled over when the amount of money they had to keep paying, not only in interest, but for people who wanted their capital back, yeah, right, was not being replaced by people coming in on the other end. So they couldn't get the new suckers to keep the old suckers happy. <laughs> You put it so beautifully. Kind of. Just to summarise. I think you've just called me an old sucker, but I, <laughs> I, I did actually. Sorry. I guess I'll I'll wear that in the circumstance. And then what happened is they stopped making finance payments on the cars. Yeah, right. Bang. And then it all toppled over when the finance companies rang us up and said, uh, we need to arrange to come and pick your car up. Yep. And we're yeah, like, what? what? What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, totally. well, we're repossessing your car. Where so is it? So what did that feel like when that happened? Shock. It was like, what? What do you mean? Because it just ended. Yeah. It was all fine and money was being paid out and then it it wasn't. And it was shocking because a lot of people got caught up in it. And they got caught up in it because it was the person who recommended to us, it was his network. And it then ran through churches. So it was people's life savings that, that they ended up losing. That's terrible. And it had a real impact on people. And these people who were running the scheme, yeah. still haven't quite figured this out, flew down to Melbourne, the Gold Coast, and maybe that should have been a sign as well. But they flew <laughs> down from the Gold Coast where there are more sharks out of the water than in the water, I'm told. Boom, boom. 
But yeah, flew down from the Gold Coast to sit in on this meeting to front people and they refused to admit their scam even then. I don't Did know you if call it was the cops? narcissist. Yeah, it went to the cops and the cops investigated it. Let me guess. Not enough resources. Not enough resources. Civil problem. Yeah, civil sort problem. Sort the courts, yeah. Okay. But what about this paperwork? Well, it all ended being made up. It was completely 100%. Which is fraud, by the way. Fictitious. Every step of the day. Yeah. I was sitting in the back of church one day feeling a bit sick about losing 165 grand because we had actually ended up having to buy the cars that we were leasing. And so not paid twice. No good deed goes unpunished. So not only did we lose the money, we then had to buy the cars a second time, but we got them at a deal because the finance company said, look, we're going to take it to auction. So if you just pay us what we think we get at auction, we're happy for you to keep the car. We kind of feel a bit bad about this, but we've got to do what we've got to do. Of course. So we ended up buying these cars back. I was sitting at church with my head in my hands thinking, oh my God, what have I done? And I was praying. I was like, God, what lesson do I need to learn out of this? And it was funny. There was no booming voice, but almost instantly the back of my mind was an acronym for the word loss, lesson on severe stupidity. <laughs> right. And so that was the message that God gave me. I, but in- you were kind of scammed too. Like I don't want to blame the victim here. You were scammed. These guys set out with an intention to take your money from you fraudulently. Yeah, we were defrauded and it was a scam, but It was my greed that overwrote my common sense. Now, what worries me is that you want to talk about the real estate industry and Australian real estate being a Ponzi scheme. Is it really as bad as that? Well, it's different. Why is it a Ponzi scheme? Well, it's a Ponzi scheme because the only way people are making money in real estate is if someone pays more for the property than they're willing to pay for. So in order for someone to get out, someone has to get in. And that smacks a bit like a Ponzi scheme. And the only way that people who buy in can then get out is if someone pays more for the property than they will. So property in its own doesn't stack up as an investment unless it's got a cash flow outcome. Yeah. But given that people are borrowing so much money to buy a property, you take cash flow off the table because the expenses are higher than the income and that only leaves a growth outcome. So to break that down, what you're really saying is that the houses are going to be so expensive at some point that the prices will have to start dropping. This is what's called also the greatest fall theory. Can I tell you about that? Totally. So the greatest fall theory works on this, that you have to be a greater fool to pay more for the property than I paid. So if I buy a property for $10 and you buy it for $12, you're a bigger fool than me because you didn't buy it for $10. Until you run out of fools. Until you run out of fools, which is when the greatest fool has bought. So the greatest fool theory works so long as there's a bigger fool than you. But when you're the biggest fool, it works in reverse as well. So if I buy a house for 20, but I can only sell it for 18, then I'm a fool. But if you buy it for 18 and then sell it for 16, then you're a fool and so on and so forth. So you get fools on the way up and fools on the way down. But isn't that part of the problem? Because I'm talking to my kids now and they're saying, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to buy a house. I mean, I think my kids will be able to, but a lot of their contemporaries are saying they can't. That's a whole generation that'll just go, actually, turn off the music. We're not doing this anymore. And the Ponzi scheme falls over when people stop drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, right. So that's the fear. Well, we're only as good as the people who keep wanting to buy into the property market. And is this why the governments keep back in the property market? Because they can't let this Ponzi scheme fall over? Well, now we move into conspiracy theory a bit. What I think is that the government I'm not sure it's deliberate or manipulative, but I think the government has a vested interest in keeping the bank strong. The banks obviously have a vested interest in making their loan book strong because if people start defaulting en masse, then the legitimacy of our banking system is called into question. And we haven't had a run on the banks for a long time, but there's no reason why it wouldn't if people don't think that their deposits are safe. The government has underwritten banking deposits to a certain extent. So the government has a dog in the fight in keeping property prices strong to keeping the banking sector strong. And they need to get reelected. That's the other thing. 
And you start with the basic principle. You know, if there's a problem with the voter, the voter's not going to vote for you. So you've got to keep their life going. Yeah. So it then becomes this government sponsored almost, it's my words, but Ponzi scheme where they have to do whatever it takes to keep property prices high. And we saw that in the pandemic, didn't we? We saw a situation where normally property prices would have fallen because people would have had to have sold their house in order to financially survive. And the government said, you know what, you don't have to make loan repayments anymore and you don't have to pay your rent anymore. And they kind of kicked investors to the curb and said, well, you're the ones who are going to have to eat this. The banks aren't necessarily going to give you, investor, a holiday on repaying the loan, but the tenants don't have to pay you anymore. And the lesson we learned from that is the government's going to look after residential voting base more than they're going to look after investors. So what happens if it all turns to poop? What I think will happen is what happened in the United States of America, which is they'll nationalise a certain amount of the debt. So they'll grab the debt back and just buy it and prop up the banks and we'll, they'll pay for it. Don't grab it back. Let's imagine they create a program called HomeSaver and they pay the banks for the debt. They might discount it a bit or pay them dollar for dollar to preserve the banking system. And then now you'll make your home loan repayments to the bank because the government's the one holding that debt. But then the government's left with debt that we pay back anyway. Well, the government's left with debt that they can't then kick people out of their homes because that looks bad. But the government debt goes up, which means generationally it'll have to be paid at some point. Correct. And the taxpayer ends up bailing out people who would otherwise have lost money but won't. So how likely is this and what does it mean to your average listener? <laughs> how, how likely is it? Well, let me rub my bald head as the crystal ball and tell you exactly when all this is going to happen. I can leave you to that if you want to. <sighs> no, look, it may not happen. It has happened in the United States, which means it can happen here. I think the trigger will be when people can no longer afford their loan repayments because interest rates would have to go up to a certain level. And here's something about the property market that people may not understand. People have to sell, but people don't have to buy. Yeah. When the number of people who have to sell goes up, but the number of people that want to buy goes down, that's when you can get price dislocation. So it's a nice house today, but it could be a house of cards. Oh, nicely done. Did you like that? It's, I just thought of that right then. It really is a house, <laughs> but it's a house of cards, which could topple over if the card at the bottom gets yanked out. What does that mean to the listener then? Does the listener not buy property? Well, the thing about a Ponzi scheme is it's like a game of musical chairs. Yeah. You can still make money in a Ponzi scheme so long as the music doesn't stop and you miss out on a chair. And the practical outcome, I think, for this podcast is to know the game you're in. If you're getting into real estate and you expect to survive by real estate prices going up and up and up, then you're only as good as the assumptions that underpin your model. And if property prices don't go up, then how do you survive when the music stops? And you need a plan for that. And the plan is to educate? The plan is to know the game you're in. And the plan is to say, well, if I couldn't sell my property, how do I avoid being a seller in a down market? And the way to look at that is, well, what could I rent it out for? Yeah. And how do I fund any positive cash flow shortfall? I, how do I fund the negative cash flow so I don't have to sell when prices are down? Because what we've learned out of the US situation, because I was buying when properties were low in the United States, sort of 2009, I was buying properties for 15 grand that were 120, 150 grand. That's how much prices fell. Extraordinary. Had to pay cash for them. But those same properties today are worth 140, 150. So... Housing markets will recover if you can hold through the downturn. But if you were someone that bought for 150 and you sold at 15, well, you copped a whack, didn't totally. you? Totally. How do they recover? They don't. Well, in America, a lot of them went bankrupt. And yeah. it's not quite the same situation in America going bankrupt as here, but it's, it's not pleasant. It's pretty bad. Mm. So, Steve, what is the podcast principle then, given that 
fairly dark discussion. Well, I reckon it's sometimes less is actually more. You know, a fool and their money are soon parted because they care more about the profit than even understanding the importance of preservation. I got blindsided by the Ponzi scheme I got caught up in because even though I knew it was too good to be true, it came from a trusted source. Yes, it worked for a little while, but I reckon if I looked deep inside my heart, it was the greed that got me. Yeah. And maybe that's an application for this podcast. What are the listeners involved in where they really know that they're making an extraordinary profit, an easy profit in uneasy ways, where if things change, that greed's going to turn to pain? If it's too good to be true, it is too good to be true, usually. Protect yourself by adopting a preservation first strategy. Got it. Rather than chasing a little more profit and a lot more risk. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Steve. That's a great episode and a great chat. And if you've enjoyed this chat, give us some feedback, please. And also send through some questions. We've got the email there. It's podcast at moneymagnet.au. We'd love to hear from you, whether it's just your comments or whether you've got something specifically you'd like us to discuss in one of the podcasts. And tell your friends about it is the last thing. If you can tell people about the podcast, that really helps a lot and people are, word of mouth really is working. Yeah, by all means, email us a word of encouragement. If you're getting something out of these podcasts, we enjoy positive feedback or constructive feedback because we want to get better. And what I would say to Rowan is, yeah, it's great to rate us, but it's also great to recommend us too. Brilliant. See you next time, mate. Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Money Magnet podcast. If you have questions or would like to provide feedback, then please send an email to podcast at moneymagnet.au.